All right, so if everyone can turn in their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and we will stand and read the Word of God until verse 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that, the, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in, the Christ, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Lord, uh, we look forward to jumping into Ephesians today, taking a break from 1 Peter. But we know that all of your scripture is profitable for teaching and encouragement and exhortation. And it doesn't matter what we study, Lord, there's always something to learn from you. And we walk away uh, having to critically think our own lives as a Christian in terms of the way which we have to live, which pleases you in this world. We look forward to our time today and just ask you to, to guide me through your spirit into truth and that we have a wonderful dialogue and time afterwards. So we look forward to this time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, knowing that a good portion of the church is going to be away for the long weekend, I thought we should maybe take a break from 1 Peter just for one more week. Uh, largely in part is because the truths are so rich in that book, and I like the fact that we're working corporately together through it. And so when everyone's here, I feel like as a church, we're growing in that knowledge of that book. And I just hate for any of us to really miss those lessons and that time together. So with the majority of the church hopefully being back next week, we will dive back into First Peter for one more before I go on holidays. But for some of you, uh, prayer is something that you're very accustomed to and is a regular part of your life and you actually enjoy for some of you, however, prayer is something you find very uncomfortable and you're not even sure how to pray, especially when it comes to public. And if someone ever asks you to pray in public, you just want to shrink in your shell and basically get buried under the ground. Part of the problem, I think, for many of us is because we don't know how to pray and what things to pray for. So I thought, why don't I spend some time today showing you one way in which you could pray for someone else who's struggling in their Christian faith. Someone who's losing heart and maybe a bit discouraged and maybe has a time of feeling hopeless. And so that if this was the only prayer you knew how to pray, you'd be well equipped either in private life or in a public setting. And we learn, of course, from Paul who wrote this letter to the Ephesian church. So let me give you the context of, this, of what's happening here. At the time that Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians, he's in prison in Rome. So he's in jail. And his reason for his imprisonment is directly related to his relationship with the Ephesian church. We pick this up in actually chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at 3, verse 1 with me. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So he's in jail largely because of his ministry to the Gentiles. It wasn't that the Ephesians, like just their, their, uh, their nation or their church, 
was the reason why he was in jail. It was his go the gospel presentation to the Gentiles in general throughout the Roman Empire. And the Ephesians were part of this mixed group. So he's been preaching, uh, preaching the gospel and hatred has stirred up towards him. And because of bringing people to faith and salvation like the Ephesians, he's now ended up in prison in Rome. And the Ephesian church recognized that Paul was suffering as a direct result of the, him bringing the gospel to them. And now they were finding themselves disheartened and discouraged. And we can actually pick this up in verse 13, prior to our verse 14. If you look there with me, he says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So again, these, these Christians are discouraged, they're losing heart because of Paul's tribulations, meaning he's persecuted, being in jail for the sake of bringing them the gospel. And so they're spiritually becoming disillusioned and discouraged. And Paul hears about this and thinks, I've got to write a letter to prevent this from going any further, because I don't want them to basically implode. So from the Ephesian perspective then, this is a terrible situation and something that was emotionally hard to handle. But from Paul's perspective, his suffering was for their glory, as verse 13 said, and was part and parcel of what it was to follow Christ. I mean, he knew what it was going to be for him to follow Christ as his ambassador. I mean, this made total sense to him that he was going to suffer in this way. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, he's going to persecute Christians. On the way there, what happens? Uh, Jesus appears to him in a vision. He basically um, is completely flattened before Christ and can't believe that Jesus is Lord, when he's been persecuting the church for claiming that Jesus is Lord, he ends up not being able to drink or eat, and he loses his sight, and God tells a man by the name of Ananias to go to him. And Ananias is afraid to go to him because he knows he's persecuted the church, but, but God says, don't worry, Ananias, and he says this to him. He says, go, for Paul is my chosen instrument to bear my name to the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul's imprisonment he, was not a surprise to him. This was not something that he didn't understand was going to happen in his life. He knew his ministry was ex indeed going to end him up in, in tough, tough circumstances as God's ambassador. But clearly the Ephesians are taking it hard, and they're emotionally and spiritually down in the dumps, and so Paul begins to pray for them. And I want to point out two significant details in this prayer that I don't want you to miss. And the first one is the category in which he's praying for them. The category. And I'll just tell you straight up front, the category is their spiritual well-being. He's praying for their spiritual well-being and not for a change in external circumstances. Look at 14 with me. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives his name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now this is an ironic uh, situation here, because here's Paul in prison. So you'd think, he's the one ultimately suffering, and if anyone's in danger of losing heart, it would be him. Yet, he doesn't ask them to join him in prayer for his eventual release. He prays instead for them for their difficulty with him being in prison. So you see what kind of man this guy is, how mature he is in his faith? Here he is in prison. You think he'd say, Ephesians, join me in prayer so I can get out of here. Change my circumstances. But instead he says, no, I'm here, but I'm going to pray for your spiritual state because I heard that you're in trouble because of where I'm situated in Rome right now. 
But we learn here that prayer for the spiritual well-being of someone is prioritized over prayer for a change in poor external circumstances. And that's an incredible lesson for us to remember, church, that prayer for spiritual well-being is prioritized over prayer for a change in circumstances. Paul is more concerned with what is going on inside a believer than what's going on outside a believer around them. And I think there's a lesson for us in how we approach God in prayer. I think that you and I can often come to God too much with a wish list. This is a wish list that includes constant requests of God to change things in our lives, right? God, please get me a new job. I just hate this one that I'm in. Or, Jesus, I'm sure hurting right now physically. I'm really sick. Can you fix me from, can you heal me of all my sickness? Or, Lord, I'm super uh, going through a really tough time with my in-laws right now in a relationship. Can you bring healing to that? Or, man, my marriage is in a real shambles right now. God, would you please fix that? Now, I'm not saying that we can't pray for these things or shouldn't pray for these things. I think it's important to do so. So hear that very clearly. However, I have, my suspicion is that it's a question of proportion for us. What percentage of our prayer lives are focused on asking get involved to change what's going on outside our Christian lives versus what's going on inside the Christian life? And this is really important because I think, it's, I think as we think this through as Christians, we can often get in danger thinking that one of the main purposes for being connected to God is that He's going to help us escape pain. He's going to help us escape suffering and get us out of hurtful experiences. But you know what? Nowhere in Scripture is that promised. And nowhere is it mandated. I mean, have you, if we've learned anything in First Peter so far, it would be what? That suffering is part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian. The entire letter of 1 Peter, we've gone with two, through two chapters already. Have you seen one prayer from Peter to get them out of their situation? Not one. What does he pray for? That they would understand their salvation, who they are in God. And that, that, that basically this life is tough, but life in glory, the life in heaven is going to come. And as a result of knowing that they're secure in Christ Jesus, that they now to appropriate their lives and live out accordingly in that world that showed that we're in genuine relationship with Christ. So again, we have nothing in Peter, a, ch a church full of trials, suffering, persecutions, all the external circumstances are against them, and not one prayer from Peter to change it. Only that they would live out a godly life in the midst of it. And he prays that they remember who they are in Christ Jesus. And here we have Paul doing the same thing. He's suffering in jail. He doesn't ask them to pray till he gets out or pray in any of those ways. He prays for their spiritual strength that they will be able to be secure and handle this situation so they don't lose heart and lose their, lose, uh, become weaker in their faith. Part of the reason this happens too is that God allows us to bump shoulders with the effects of a fallen world. So the reason why we often endure hardships and pain and things like that is because God allows us to bump shoulders with the effects of the fallen world. When Adam and Eve sinned, everything went literally to hell in a handbasket, and we're living out in those effects. And here's the thing, we're all eventually going to die. Every single one of us. All of us are going to suffer broken relationships. Every single one of us. All of us are going to be hit by natural disasters. A lot of us will maybe get laid off from work and so on and so forth. 
But there's no promise in Scripture of a constant rescue for us in these circumstances. And that's often why we don't see our prayers answered by God in ways we hope, because we're often praying in ways and categories that are not of priority to Him. His priority is how we endure and how we persevere spiritually in the midst of hardship and how we represent Him as God's people. So again, this lesson from Paul is at the forefront of God's concern in our spiritual state. And this is important for us to grasp. Okay, so that's the category, spiritual well-being. How about the manner? How are we to pray for people? How do you pray for someone when they're disillusioned and suffering? And what can we ask God to do? Look at verse 16. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So what's going on here? How does this work? Well, what Paul is saying is this. There's a way in which you and I can pray that will invoke God to supernaturally communicate with another believer. We can, by prayer, get God involved in a way that he will communicate with his Holy Spirit to the inner man of another believer. Where his spirit speaks to the spirit of another Christian. His Holy Spirit speaks to our spirit as a Christian. Now what does this mean to be this inner spirit or inner being? What does this exactly mean? Well, the same word is used in Romans 7.22. He says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Okay, so the inner being here is something that can delight in God's law. Where does that take place in a person? In their head. <laughs> in your mind. Often translated the heart in the scriptures. So the inner being is like the seat of personality. It's your mind. It's, it's, your, it's your heart. It's basically where your conscience is. So God's Holy Spirit can speak to our conscience through the prayer of someone else. So the inner being then is something that's visibly seen on the out, not visibly seen on the outside, but is accessible to God through His Holy Spirit. Now that's incredible when you think about it, because that God can use our prayers to directly influence through His Spirit the faith of another, especially when they're struggling and discouraged. But yet we can have an influence. That's incredible to think about that. And that, I think the word influence though is important. This is not a faith injection. What I mean by that is, like, you're sitting there, and let's say I'm the one struggling, and then Sarah starts praying for me, that the Spirit would speak to me in my inner being. It's not like I'm laying there and I feel weak, and all of a sudden, bang, I feel like I'm a superhero, and I'm energized with like, God's Spirit to go out and conquer the world. That's not what it means. He brings to the forefront of your mind a revelation from God that you weren't thinking before. So through prayer, Sarah could be praying for me, and I'm discouraged and disheartened and down and out. And all of a sudden, a revelation comes to my mind that wasn't there before. And all of a sudden, I have this opportunity now to, to, be, to embrace this revelation as a way of getting me out of my funk. But God doesn't force us to do that. He brings it to our forefront of our minds. And we have a choice. Do we embrace it and, and be, receive hope? Or do we discard it and uh, stay disillusioned? That's how this works. And do we have an example of this in, uh, in Scripture? Absolutely. Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or the one of the prophets. 
What about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You didn't know this, Peter. I, the Lord, the, the Father, your Father, gave this to you. Something you didn't not only know was given to you supernaturally by God. He communicated by the Spirit into his inner being. Now at this point, Peter embraces this revelation and is encouraged and it's, 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 a, it's a good scene. But watch this. Jesus now gives him a, personally gives him a further revelation in which he doesn't embrace. And look what happens. <laughs> look at the rest of the story. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Right? As the Christ, that's not the mandate for your life. I've decided that. Right? And even though I was given that revelation of who the, that you are the Christ, that's not the revelation I understand in terms of how it's going to live out in your, practically. And then Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Again, this is why it's important the way God communicates when we pray for people. It's not a faith injection. He brings something, a revelation of God to your mind. You have a choice to embrace it or not. If you embrace it, it'll, it'll help you to be encouraged to get out of your disillusionment. But you can reject it and stay in your funk. And that's the way it goes. However, again, we don't want to miss the incredible fact that we can pray for people in a way that God will get involved in their lives without them even knowing it. And God will listen to our prayers and look to strengthen the faith of another person. So, as we continue then in verse 17, Paul introduces us to the purpose of the strengthening prayer. What's the purpose then? If this is how it works, what's the purpose? Verse 17 through 19. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. I know this is a mouthful from Paul, so I'll do my best to summarize what he's saying. This prayer that is designed to strengthen a believer is really to accomplish four realities in a believer's life. And we'll work at, look at them together here. The purpose of Paul's prayer accomplishes four realities. The first one is this, found in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in the hearts of these believers. This is not a reference to initial salvation. He's not asking them to be saved. They're already saved. That's why he's writing a letter to the brethren in Ephesus and the brothers and sisters. This is not a reference to initial salvation, but that a believer would experience his ongoing presence. May you, uh, the purpose of these prayers as God speaks to you is that you may recognize the ongoing presence of Christ in your life. Second reality is that they would be rooted and grounded in love, also found in verse 17. Now you think about this, rooted means basically is to like have your, is like to be planted firmly and grounded is to have like stability. 
So one of the purposes of the Spirit speaking to the inner being is so that the person would be rooted and grounded or planted and have stability in love. Which makes total sense because when you're discouraged and hopeless, what's the exact opposite you have? You're off balance. You're not rooted and grounded in love. You're all over the place in your head and in your life. Right? It's hard to, it's hard to like stay focused on the Christian life you're to live out. So as we focus on these things, we become rooted and grounded in love, and we have stability, and, 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 plant, and we're planted firmly in, in love and in faith. Verse 18, the third point, that we be able to comprehend God's love. So we, we, this prayer will help us comprehend the vastness of God's love. Again, here we, he, we hear him talk about this in a way that is almost incomprehensible. In verse 18, he says, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know, right? So here's this idea is that you may be able to comprehend it, but you may not fully comprehend it. But he's, this prayer, though, is to give us this ability to somehow grasp the vastness and the immensity of Christ's love for us, ultimately reflected by the cross, right? How does someone love us so much that they lay their life down on the line with such a gruesome death. How can, how, I can't even comprehend that. I can barely love my, my fellow family members or my, my neighbors even though their sins against me are far less than my sins against Christ. How does God possibly love me when I'm so often, often so vile in the way I've lived out my life? But that's the thing. We, if somehow we can comprehend the vastness and immensity of it, that's the purpose of this prayer. Verse 19 is the final one, the fourth purpose, that, that they know the love of Christ. In other letters written by Paul, to know Christ and to, and to love Christ is to be known by Him. Is to be known by Him. So this, what he's saying this, when he says here that you are to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, I think what he's saying is, I want you to understand... Uh, to, well, yeah, I want you to know and to understand uh, that you are known by Him and therefore you'll be controlled by His love. Okay? So these are the four, pur four purposes behind this prayer. And the result of all these things, however, is found in verse 19 at the very end. He says, if you understand these four realities, he says that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God. You know these four realities in your life. You'll be filled up to the fullness of God. And I like the way my commentary in my Bible words this. I'll just read it straight from John MacArthur's notes. He wrote, that, he wrote what this means. And I think he's right. He says, the believer is so strong spiritually. They're so strong spiritually. And so compelled by divine love. That one is totally dominated by the Lord with nothing left in themselves. You're filled up to the fullness of God because you're so strong spiritually, so compelled in divine love that you're totally dominated by the love of the Lord. You have nothing left in and of yourselves. Now this conveys movement towards a goal. To, to be filled up is, to, is a process and it, it's a goal. So it's not a momentary arrival. And depending on what situation you're facing, you'll have to be refilled in these areas depending what the trial is. And it even may be a day-by-day -day thing or a week-by-week -week thing or month-by-month. -month. But this is a process and a movement towards a goal to be filled up to the fullness of God. So why pray in this way? Why all of this? Why would Paul say this? Well, think about it. When, it's, when you're down and out, is God at the forefront of your mind, typically? 
or is it more your trials and tribulations and hardships? Isn't it easy for, to push God out, to forget about Him, how much He loves you in times of suffering? Don't you ask questions like me, like, where are you in the midst of this? Don't you care? Right? I mean, it's during those times we're easily shaken, we are discouraged, we lack hope, and we easily get off balance. But when a Christian meditates on Christ's love and, and, that, what is, and that love is at the forefront of one's mind, it grounds us in our faith. It makes us less shaky. We make better decisions. We think more clearly. And we treat others appropriately because we have that as the basis of our, of our foundation. I like what one of my commentators said. His name was Andrew Lincoln. He said, God's love in Christ provides the basis for secure Christian living. I'll leave you with this thought before we go into lessons. What I love about what Paul's teaching us here is this. That if a person is suffering and disillusioned in any area of life, you know, that our prayers can bring healing in these areas unbeknownst to the person who's hurting. Right? So let's say, again, I'm suffering. Well, I'm suffering and I'm really down and Shelley's aware of my suffering. If she prays for me on, on a daily basis or a weekly basis or monthly basis because she knows those areas in terms of where I'm spiritually hurting, she can then get God to get involved in my life so that I stop thinking in a disillusioned way and God gives me a specific revelation to my head that I've never thought about before as a way of strengthening me in my faith. And when I feel the Spirit, when I get this revelation and it comes like, this just comes to me, I automatically know that's, a, that's an indicator I'm connected to God. And then it reminds me of His love for me. And all of a sudden, I can just go into praise and thankfulness and get out of my disillusioned state knowing that really this world is temporary and everything that awaits me that God promises is ultimately realized in glory. It's an incredible thing to think that we can have a, an influence in each other's lives in these areas. But again, how often do we spend most of our time praying for external things and not the spiritual state of each other? And that's the priority for Paul, who never asked these guys to get him out of jail, never prayed to God for to be released out of jail that we can see, just he cared about the spiritual state of these Christians. It's no wonder why Paul thinks this is so mind-blowing, and we pick up his conclusion in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul uh, has nothing left to say except praise God and thank him for this incredible gift of prayer and how he would get involved in a person's life. I'll leave you with four lessons. First one is this. In prayer, the spiritual well-being of a believer is to be our priority over external circumstances. Our prayer and the spiritual well-being of a believer is to be our priority over external circumstances. Again, just to, I don't want to derail, I don't want to get derailed into the dialogue. Here's, here's the derail. 
Angie, you don't think God cares about my physical health? Or the fact that my marriage is in trouble or I can't get along with my neighbor? Yes, he does. But, <laughs> priorities, priorities. His number one concern is your spiritual state. How do you live out your life in the midst of trials? Are you, under, are you controlled by his love? Are you modeling Christ in this world and the way you deal with hardships and so on and so forth? He cares more about that because that's ultimately the part that he, he is going to be, he deals with even when you get to glory. If you're secure and spiritually, these, this will give you the promise of heaven. If you're shaky and everything and eventually you ditch God because of your total frustration, there will be no life with the Lord in glory. So the spiritual state and our perseverance is what matters to the Lord the most. And again, God allows us to bump shoulders with the fallen world, and that is why we need to be spiritually strong, because the world is tempting, the world is enticing, we all love it in our own little ways, and so it wants to, it wants to take us out. And so we need to be spiritually strong to resist. Second lesson. Our prayers can invoke God's Spirit to speak to the inner being of a fellow Christian as a means of strengthening their faith. So our prayers can invoke God's Spirit to speak to the inner being of a fellow Christian as a means of strengthening their faith. Again, this is not a faith injection, but a faith influence. We still have a choice when that revelation comes to our head whether to embrace it or to reject it. But regardless, it's still a great advantage. <laughs> it's a great advantage to know that I can pray for my wife and God could, could speak to her in that way, or my husband, or my kids. Or my coworker, or like my coworker, who's who's a fellow Christian, and so on and so forth. We know God can get involved, and we can praise Him for it. Third lesson: the purpose behind such prayer is so that a struggling believer fixates on the love of Christ. When you're struggling, and you pray in this way. We're to, it's the, the purpose behind it is that we fixate on the love of Christ. When we, when we read those four purposes, it all had to do with love. It all had to do with love. Being fit, rooted and grounded in love. You know, comprehending the, the love of Christ. Knowing the love of Christ. These are all things to do with love. So the purpose behind prayer is to fixate us on the love of Christ. And finally... When we do this, when Christ's love dominates the core of one's thinking, it greatly influences a believer's ability to endure trials and hardships. When Christ's love dominates the core of your thinking, it will greatly influence your ability to endure trials and hardships. Again, because in trials and hardships, you don't think about your relationship with God and how much He loves you. <laughs> and if you do, wonderful. You're, you're actually obeying Ephesians chapter 3 and I'm proud of you. But if you're not, we have a lot of growth to do, and I'm convicted of the same thing as I sit here before you today. But hopefully you're more mature than I am, and you've already realized this in your life. But if you haven't, this is an instruction from Paul to you to help you through trials and circumstances.